During the summer of 1941, public opinion in the United States had started to shift in favor of entering World War II. Just a year earlier, a poll showed that more than 90% of Americans opposed getting involved in the global conflict. But as France fell and Great Britain struggled, it was becoming clear that Americans were not safe from the Axis forces. The arrow in that poll kept moving until well over 50% of the population said they wanted to join the fight. President Roosevelt referred to the nation as an arsenal of democracy, referring to the support the U.S. would offer the Allies in Europe and China. Well before the U.S. officially declared war, the nation stood resolutely with the Allied nations in trying to end the conflict. But there were still fights on the home front. One scribe wondered, How can this nation spread peace and amity over the entire world when it can't even reconcile the Cubs fans with the White Sox maniacs? Yes, the rivalry was still strong. How then did it suddenly disappear in 1943? Well, the simplest answer is the war. Americans diverted their attention from ballparks, and the interest in a Chicago City series wasn't what it once had been. But eventually the war ended, and there was nothing that Joe and Jane American wanted to do more than go to a ball game. In 1946, the first season after the conclusion of World War II, the average attendance at a major league game was 15,000, almost double the previous record. And yet, play never resumed in October between Chicago's two big league teams. There was never even a discussion of it. I'm Terry Bonadonna, and on today's episode of Chicago's Civil War, I'll break down the reasons for the end of the yearly clash. We'll look at some of the ways the rivalry survived despite the absence of the City Series. And later, I'll talk with White Sox TV broadcaster Jason Benetti and Cubs radio voice Pat Hughes to get a viewpoint from the press box on how the Crosstown conflict holds up today. The City Series may be over, but there's still plenty to cover. So let's get going. In 1943, as the baseball season began to wind down, neither of Chicago's major league teams had the World Series on their minds. The White Sox had a winning record, but they finished 16 games out of first place. The Cubs were 30 games behind their league leader. Since the Sox, as usual, had won the previous year's City Series, it was incumbent on the Cubs to issue a challenge. They didn't. The Cubs had passed on making a challenge in 1927 and 1934 as well, but there was something different about this time. In the past, the Cubs had announced that they wouldn't play the Sox, making a clear point of their reasoning. In 1943, there was no such announcement. Both the Cubs and White Sox were okay with the tradition simply taking a year off. Although it should be noted that not all the Cubs were okay with it. The previous year's series was the least attended in city history, but it still netted close to $300 per player on the winning team, a pretty good chunk of change in the early 1940s. A well-attended series in 43 would have been a big supplement to a player's salary. That meant a lot to some of the lesser-paid players on the team. The Cubs took a vote, and by a count of 13-7, to 7, the players were in favor of issuing the challenge to the Sox. But the minority included manager Jimmy Wilson and team captain Stan Hack, so the 7 won out over the 13. Wilson denied that the players were eager to get home, and claimed that there were other reasons for not challenging the Southsiders that he was not at liberty to divulge. In truth, there were a lot of very clear explanations for the lack of a series. Cubs owner P.K. Wrigley had never been all that fond of the yearly tradition. He felt that it rewarded the team's failure to win a pennant by allowing them an extra week of action anyway, and a big post-series paycheck. Of course, the paycheck would have been bigger for the Cubs players if they ever got the winning share, which they didn't even a single time during P.K.'s reign. 
There has long been an argument that once radio became more mainstream and it was easier to follow the World Series from anywhere, including Chicago, the local interest in the City Series dampened. This theory isn't supported by attendance numbers, though. In the late 20s and early 30s, just before the Great Depression hit, and several years after radio broadcasts had taken off, the Sox and Cubs were receiving unprecedented attention in the stands. On certain days, they even outdrew World Series games. Those numbers had fallen in recent years, but as times got tough around the country, attendance fell everywhere. Once the calendar moved into the 40s, the war contributed to continually diminishing crowds. Another year of paltry crowds at a City Series would have made for small bonus checks again, and while $300 was a nice benefit to the backups and young guys, it looked pretty meager to the higher-paid players. In the heyday of the series, the winners sometimes took home over a thousand bucks. Another cause of the devolution of the series was the lack of competitiveness from Chicago's original franchise. For years, in schoolyards and barrooms all over the city, debates had raised fiercely over who was the superior team. On the ball field, there was no contest. It was all White Sox. From 1903 to 1942, the 40 years during which the City Series was active, the Cubs had a total winning percentage of 558, an average of 86 wins per year. The White Sox during that same period had a 494 win percentage, a 76 win per season average. Seven times the City Series wasn't played because the Cubs had won a pennant. The Sox only precluded the series because of a league championship twice. The numbers are clear, during this era as a whole, the Cubs were a better team. Almost every year they were huge favorites, but it never seemed to play out the way it was supposed to. Throughout the first three decades of the October Clash, the Southside Club often caught the West and then Northsiders off guard. In the final decade, it became a farce. In 1928 and 1930, the Cubs finally, for the first time, won back-to-back -back series. It looked as though it might be a new day in the city rivalry. Instead, they apparently decided that winning two straight was enough of an accomplishment. They never took another. From 1931 until 1942, the White Sox won the final eight series consecutively. In games, their record was 32-13. and 13. Overall, they had met up in 26 postseason series, and in only nine of them had they both finished the season with winning records. Despite this fact, there was excitement in the city every fall. No doubt fans would have loved it even more if they got to see two 90-win teams sparring each year, but the relative lack of regular season success didn't seem to have a major impact on the Rooters' enthusiasm. What did negatively affect that enthusiasm is that only one team showed up to the series itself. After wrapping up their six-game victory in 1943, the White Sox had won 19 of their 26 meetings with the Cubs, including the 1906 World Series. The Bruins had only taken six, with the unsanctioned series of 1903 having ended in a tie. Considering that tradition had called for the losing team to make the challenge each year, it's no wonder the battle didn't keep going. The Cubs were probably fed up with getting trounced every year. That may have been one of Jimmy Wilson's super-secret reasons not to play in 1943. In any case, Wilson was gone in 1944, and Charlie Grimm was back for his second stint in the manager's chair. The onus was still on the Cubs to challenge, but again they declined to do so. In late August, Grimm announced that his team had suffered too many injuries, and he wanted his players to go home as soon as the season ended. The fact that it was the skipper who made this announcement, and not P.K. Wrigley or general manager Jim Gallagher, was significant. In 1945, Jolly Charlie Grimm led his team to the World Series for the first time in seven years, so a best of seven with the White Sox was never on the table. That made it three straight years with no City Series. The last time there had been such a stretch was 1917 through 1920. 
Although there had been considerably more scandal associated with those years, there was a big similarity in that both occurred in the midst of world war. American life has always had the tendency to go through big changes in the wake of major wars, and baseball is not exempt from those changes. Although it was a very minor casualty of post-World War I life, that conflict essentially spelled the end of the tradition of postseason municipal championships. St. Louis, Boston, Philadelphia, Ohio, and New York had all dabbled in the city rivalry games, but had given them up after 1917. For a while it appeared that Chicago would do the same. Had the series not gone off in 1921, it's likely that no one would have questioned it. It was a custom that most people seemed ready to let go. But Chicago wouldn't let it. The biggest reason was the willingness of the city's top baseball men to make it work. With the new exciting regime of William Wrigley and William Veck running the show on the north side, and the franchise founders still kicking, if a little less exuberantly, on the south side, by sheer force of will they made sure that this tradition wouldn't die. Coming out of the Second World War, there was no such dynamic leadership of the local baseball squads. I've already detailed P.K. Wrigley's aversion to the series. The fact that managers Jimmy Wilson and Charlie Grimm appeared to have had the final say on whether or not they would challenge those last few years indicates that Wrigley had already checked out of that decision. Things weren't very much different on the south side, where Grace Comiskey was in charge. Comiskey had inherited the team from her husband, who had inherited it from his father. The White Sox were now two degrees removed from the man who had helped to establish the American League. Grace, like the younger Wrigley across town, had no real connection to the local baseball tradition, and was therefore in no rush to protest when the Cubs continually declined to issue a challenge. The last man remaining from the salad days of Chicago baseball had been Harry Grabener. Grabener began working with the White Sox in 1905 as a 15-year-old selling scorecards. The young Grabener caught the eye of Charles Comiskey and quickly rose through the ranks until he became club secretary at the age of 25. Along with Comiskey, he had built the team that won the 1917 World Series and challenged for the 1919 crown. When Comiskey faded into the background following the Black Sox scandal, Grabener ran the show. Since the mid-20s, he had been in charge of almost all baseball decisions within the organization. In 1945, the combination of failing health and a less-than-perfect relationship with Grace Comiskey caused Grabener to resign his post after 40 years in the organization. With Grabener gone, no one with either team seemed particularly concerned when the topic of the City Series didn't come up in 1946. By then, the custom was effectively dead. The attendance boom that immediately followed the war lasted the rest of the decade and never again dropped as low as the pre-war numbers, so there was undoubtedly a market to restart the series in. But the interest wasn't there anymore from either club. And so, it was over. After 40 years, 26 series, and 160 games, almost exactly a full season, the Cubs and White Sox were finished with their postseason battles. They haven't played another since. That means that the legacy of the City Series will always be the White Sox domination. The Cubs ran out of time to change it. In their 160 games, the Pale Hose won 95 and lost 62, with three ending in ties. Of those wins, the most belonged to Red Faber, who had a City Series record of 11-6. Ted Lyons wasn't far behind at 10-8. Both Faber and Lyons eventually wound up in Cooperstown, making them two of the 11 Hall of Famers to have played in at least one City Series game for the White Sox. The Cubs had 14. One man, Johnny Evers, fits on both lists, even though he only played in one game and didn't have an at-bat for the White Sox. The games of the Chicago City Series were hotly contested, but soon after, were largely forgotten. It didn't take long for the old series to be written off as exhibitions that didn't hold much significance. 
as we've discovered over the last 10 weeks, that simply isn't the case. The games carried significance to the players who were trying to supplement their salaries and bring glory to their ball clubs. They were significant to the fans who desperately wanted bragging rights. And they were significant to the media who, up to the end, often gave preferential coverage to the local games over those of the World Series. The level of meaning that is ascribed to any game is largely arbitrary, and it's especially hard to ascertain the importance of games that were played a century or more ago. But to study the contemporary news reports, it does appear safe to say that the intra-city battles between Chicago's teams were as big in the minds of the local fans as any games were. The end of their postseason battles could very easily have been the end of the animosity between the White Sox and Cubs, but somehow, without playing each other, the rivalry seemed to grow. Jason Benetti is the TV broadcaster for the White Sox. He didn't join the organization until 74 years after the end of the City Series, but he's been going to ball games in Chicago his whole life, and he reports that there is very definitely a different atmosphere when the City's teams go head-to-head. It's sort of like what I imagine is in the interior of a volcano when it's about to erupt. Since regular season interleague play was introduced to baseball in 1997, only four seasons have finished with the Cubs and White Sox both above 500. In just one of those years, they both made the playoffs. So when they've played each other, usually mid-season, there hasn't been a whole lot on the line as far as the standings go. And yet, every moment is still tense. The Eloy Jimenez home run last year was one of those moments where that was a regular season game that really had no merit in the standings, and people still talk about it, and they will for a while. Everything's magnified, too, like the Carlos Zambrano incident, the Michael Barrett thing, like A.J. Pierzynski. He was like, everybody who meets me wants to talk about the Michael Barrett thing. It just sticks with people. And I guarantee you, if he did that in a random game against the Tigers, people just wouldn't care as much. It's a special feeling. There's no question about it. Uh, The fans are really into it. But make no mistake, the players are really into it also. That last voice you heard belongs to Pat Hughes. Hughes sits on the other side of the rivalry from Benetti. Since the Cubs and Sox started playing in the regular season, he has been on the call from the Cubs radio booth for every game. That fun that he talks about in covering these games must have been pretty pervasive because there was always an effort to keep the contention alive. Remember before when I said that the rivalry seemed to grow without the teams playing each other? Well, that may have been a misleading statement. Or false, I guess you could call it false. Between 1942 and 1997, they did keep playing each other, just under different circumstances. The spring series that had started in 1933 continued uninterrupted after the fall series collapsed. In fact, the spring games took on a little extra meaning because they were the only meetings of the year between the two teams. The series typically began at their spring training sites. Once they got back to the Windy City, they were at the mercy of the weather. The games were scheduled to be played just before the regular season opened, so there was no room for rescheduling if rain, snow, or cold got in the way. Considering it was Chicago in early April, that happened a lot. Fans were happy to keep the rivalry alive, and the managers, with few exceptions, agreed to play the games to win rather than using them as a tune-up for the regular season. The winners of the annual spring series still generally called themselves city champions, but there were fewer winners than there used to be. There were very often an even number of games played, meaning that it wasn't uncommon for the spring series to end in a tie. In the early 50s, the White Sox moved their spring training to Florida and the Cubs to Arizona, so they didn't meet up for the first time each year until they convened in Chicago. 
Then in 1958, the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to LA. The Cubs were slated to open the season out west, and it didn't make much sense to travel all the way back to Chicago for a few quick games against the Sox before turning right back around. So for the first time in over 25 years, there was no spring series. In 1949, with the Spring Series having served as the only substitute for October baseball for the past five years, the Cubs and White Sox brass inaugurated a new contest to stoke the flames of the crosstown rivalry. Really, it was more of a charitable effort. Proceeds from the game were donated to the Chicago Park District to be put toward youth baseball facilities. The game was a success. Over 36,000 fans showed up to Comiskey Park on the night before the All-Star Game and saw the Cubs' Johnny Schmitz twirl a complete game gem and knock off the Southsiders 4-2. They didn't match up again the next year because the White Sox were hosting the All-Star Game, but the Midsummer Tryst resumed in 1951 with a 3-2 White Sox win, and these boys' benefit games became an annual affair. For 23 years, the Sox and Cubs found a mutual off day each season, sometime between June and August, to renew acquaintances. Because Wrigley Field didn't have lights, Comiskey was typically the location, even if the Cubs were the home team. The games did have their moments. The 1964 edition, for instance, drew 52,000 fans to Comiskey Park. Overall, though, they lacked the intensity of the old postseason rivalry, or even of the Spring Series. By the early 1970s, the game had lost its luster. Starters rarely played a full game, and both teams tended to bring up a minor league pitcher to start because they didn't want to risk injury to their regulars. In 1973, both sides agreed that they were done with it. The games were still popular, the last one played brought out 38,000 fans. They gave a standing ovation to Ernie Banks, who had retired the previous year but suited up for the exhibition. Billy Williams hit a home run, and the Cubs beat the White Sox 3-1. But there was no longer a spirit of competition, and the managers didn't like it interrupting their season. The Cubs won 13 of the 23 games played, so apparently the White Sox jinx was on hiatus. After the boys' benefit games ended in 1972, it seemed like the on-field rivalry had too. But among fans, the competition never died, so there was always someone who wanted to bring the teams together again. In 1981, that someone was Mayor Jane Byrne. The 81 season was interrupted by a player strike that knocked out two months' worth of games. After peace had been made, Mayor Byrne proposed a local exhibition series that would get the players back in playing shape and raise some money for charity. An average of just over 23,000 fans came to the two games, one at each park. The opener of the two games set at Comiskey ended in a 0-0 tie. The next day, the Cubs won a mistake-filled contest 4-3 at Wrigley. That two-game set opened the door for future exhibitions. By 1985, it had become an annual tradition. For the next 10 years, the Sox and the Cubs took one day out of their schedule to play nine innings. They alternated home fields, and the White Sox regained that spark that had guided them through all those years of City Series dominance. They won eight of the ten contests and tied the other two. The Cubs didn't win a one. The games were mostly fun for the fans, but the teams didn't take them too seriously. Lineups were littered with backups and minor leaguers. The most famous game occurred in 1994, when Double A outfielder Michael Jordan suited up for the Sox and started in right field. He finished the game with two hits and two RBIs. Another strike short in the 1995 season, and again Chicago's teams prepped for the resumption of play with a two-game series. But the strike had a much more significant impact on the Chicago rivalry than those two White Sox wins. The work stoppage alienated a lot of fans, and in an attempt to win them back, Major League Baseball approved interleague play. 
The baseball landscape of 1997 was very different from the one of 1942. Philadelphia, Boston, and St. Louis were no longer two team towns. Two of New York's three squads departed and were replaced by a new one. The only crosstown rivalry that still existed that was over 35 years old was in Chicago. Naturally, the Sox and Cubs have played each other every year since. The games have been remarkably even. Through the first 23 years of the new interleague format, the White Sox do have an edge. It probably wouldn't feel right if they didn't, but it's a narrow one. They've beaten the Cubs 62 times, and the Cubs have won 60. And through all of them, the fans have shown up in droves, as rabid as ever in their support for their team. As White Sox historian Richard Lindbergh recalls, sometimes even when they're not playing each other. I'll never forget, after the second game of the World Series, I attended Game 2, and the Sox won that amazing game beating the Houston Astros. Uh, Conurco's home run did it. And all these sloshed, happy White Sox fans are walking down the ramps. And here at this moment of triumph, you know, we're going to win the World Series. The Cubs are nowhere in sight. And these Sox fans were walking down the ramps, enchanting unison. Cubs suck. Cubs suck. They were yelling that the night the White Sox won Game 2 of the World Series. That's how passionate it is that here they are worrying about the Cubs the night the Sox are experiencing one of the greatest games they ever played. But that's the root of this thing. The rivalry that began when Charles Comiskey brought his St. Paul Saints to Chicago in 1900 keeps growing and growing. Which baseball team of Chicago and roots for has a lot to say about their relationship to the city. So I wanted to know from Lindbergh if it's even possible to be a fan of both teams simultaneously. No. Okay, that seems straightforward enough. But what if I posed the exact same question to Cubs historian Ed Hartig? No, no, no. Well, that's two for two. And perhaps the only thing that fans of both teams can agree on. Hey, this is fun. Let's see what Pat Hughes thinks. No, not really. And again, we'll counter from the other side of town. Here's Jason Benetti. You can be a Sox fan and not hate the Cubs. And you can be a Cub fan and not hate the Sox. Uh, to be a full-fledged Cubs and Sox fan, I think, is really difficult. Just because the instinct is to want to pick. At least he was a little more diplomatic about it. To be fair, Hughes backed off on his response a bit, too. For one thing, I think there's too much hatred in our society as it is. And, and for people to hate the other side is a little strong. That's, that's taking, taking your, uh, your fandom just a little too seriously. Sure, there are those out there with civic pride, people who just want to see Chicago do well. But they're few and far between. For the most part, fans seem to revel in a good back and forth. When your team is doing poorly, at least you've got someone else in town who may have it just a little bit worse as a fan. The taunting cries of 1908 and 1917 may be gone now that both sides have won a World Series this century, but there's always something to get the other guy's goat. Let's go back to 2005. The whole White Sox fan base was thrilled when the White Sox won the World Series. The next spring, when the tickets went on sale, the Sox coming off a World Series sold 700,000. The Cubs, as an also ran, sold 2.4 million tickets the same day. I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, it can get ugly sometimes, but it's always interesting. I mean, it's crazy town sometimes in the stands. There are videos of Sox and Cubs fans getting into it, like yelling at each other. It gets pretty nasty. I don't know what the city would do now if they played a city series every year. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> you know. We can only imagine. 
The way the postseason is arranged now, a city series in Chicago or anywhere else would probably be impossible to arrange, and certainly not at the level of intensity it had in its glory days. Instead, if fans want to see the Cubs and Sox square off in October again, it would have to be in the World Series. Can you imagine that? The great Chicago fire that happened that one time might have something that rivals it. I mean, it would be jam-packed to the gills. There'd be people on the streets. There'd be yelling. There'd be screaming. There'd be divided households. The city would focus on that until it was over. Well, if it does ever happen, we'll remember that it's not the first postseason battle between Chicago powers since 1906. There have been many incredible matchups in between. Chicago's Civil War has been written, produced, and narrated by me, Terry Bonadonna. To say that I did this all myself, though, would make me a dirty liar. So let me take a moment to acknowledge everyone who provided assistance along the way. First of all, the Chicago History Museum was a great resource throughout my preparation. Thanks to Peter Alter, Rachel Hatch, and the entire incredibly helpful staff there. The newspaper archives at the Harold Washington Library in Chicago were also an incredibly valuable source. Mine was not the only voice featured over the last 11 episodes. We also heard from John McMurray, Richard Lindbergh, Ed Hardig, Leslie Heafy, Sean Devaney, Peter Alter, Jacob Pomrenke, Jason Benetti, and Pat Hughes. Lindbergh and Pomrenke were especially accommodating in recommending other sources of information. Michael Cantor had previously done extensive research into the City Series, and Alex Byart-Williams provided an indispensable service by supplying his notes on the Chicago baseball rivalry. The Sabre Bio Project was also an invaluable resource in examining information on individual players. Thanks as well to Peter Chase of the Chicago Cubs and Jeff Zainal of the Chicago White Sox for their cooperation. As always, for more information on this podcast series or to catch up on anything you missed, please visit terrybonadonna.com city series. I appreciate the support, and I hope that through this series you've learned something and maybe had a little fun. I sure did. They have the time, the time of their life. I saw a man and he danced with his wife in Chicago. Chicago. Chicago.